What comes to your mind when you think Romans chapter 12? First thing that comes to your mind. What is it? Anybody? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, that's at least different from what would have come to my mind. Because I heard this passage on my life. Sam, be not conformed to this world. Anybody else? Joe. Yeah, be not conformed to this world. A living sacrifice. Be transformed. Okay, so we've, we've heard those verses a lot. Um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, Romans chapter 12 is... Uh, it's actually a powerful declaration of what happens when the gospel comes into our life. And we heard about that last week. And so I want to look at it from that perspective. Um, it's, it's kind of like the capstone for, for the book of Romans. And, and the book of Romans is one of the most profound and uh, maybe the clearest explanation of gospel reality that we have in the Word of God. Um, and for that case, anywhere. So uh, let, let's just read Romans chapter 12 and then we'll get into that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, 
you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. So, as I said, the book of Romans is a very clear expression of what the gospel is. And chapter 12 starts out as an appeal based on what was just said in the rest of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on what what we've just been talking about in the rest of the book of Romans, by the mercies of God, since you are recipients of the mercy of God, as we've laid it out in in Romans, um, because of this, present your bodies as a sacrifice. So Paul had just gone to great lengths to show the mercy of God as it's demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ. Um, how that the gospel came to us in our helplessness, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, when we were helpless to save ourselves. And the first three chapters of the book of Romans really lay the foundation of just the depravity of man, how that, how that we turned our backs on God, how there, there's no righteousness in us of ourselves. And, and then uh, the, the gospel breaks into that. The gospel, the power of God as salvation to everyone who believes. Um, so this mercy that he's mentioning here is something that's obtained through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through mercy, we have been justified. Through mercy, we have peace with God. We have gained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We, In fact, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is all the mercy of God being laid out in the book of Romans. We died with Christ so that we could be resurrected with him and walk in newness of life. We don't anymore have the spirit of slavery that we used to have where we used to serve God out of a sense of obligation, trying to keep the moral code that he had given us. But now we serve him in freeness of spirit we've received the spirit of adoption because through the spirit of god he has made us cry out to him abba father this is all god's mercy to us his spirit declares to us that we are his children and even fellow heirs of the glory of christ so that's something that's really hard to wrap our minds around and i'm going to take two kind of major rabbit trails um, during this sermon. We're not actually going to just go down through the entire chapter 12 of of Romans here, but I'm going to take two rabbit trails mainly to show us what the grace of God is that has been poured into us and how that these instructions in Romans chapter 12 can become an outflow of that grace and of the reality of the gospel in our lives. So he's made us heirs of the glory of Christ. Just unbelievable. And it's going to become even more unbelievable when we see what that means. So I appeal to you, based on this mercy that we have obtained, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is just the response that flows out of that. He's already firmly established through this letter that this sacrifice is in no way a reconciliatory sacrifice. In, in no way does it earn God's favor. He already went to great lengths throughout the book of Romans to show that is not the case, that the grace that we've received through Jesus Christ was completely unmerited. It was a gift from God, and it is simply received 
through faith, not through anything good that we have done to earn it. This sacrifice is not like the old sacrifices where people would bring a sheep or a goat and they would kill it and that was burn it up and that was it. And God would receive that sacrifice as a way of pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ. This sacrifice that we make with our bodies is a living response to what God has already done for us. It's holy. It's set apart from the systems that we see around us. While others live for themselves, for their own pleasures, we are set apart for God. Our lives are set apart for God as a response to the gospel. While religious systems create elaborate, fleshly efforts to win God's favor, we know that's not the case. Our our sacrifice of ourselves is not earning God's favor. And while the world sneers at a life that's set apart in service to God, you've set your life aside to be a follower of Jesus because you, you can't help it. Because of what he's done for you because of the grace that you've received. This is an entirely different sacrifice than the one we would like to make. In other words, conformity to a moral code that could earn our salvation. That's what our flesh gravitates to. And that's why he reminds us to give up our lives as a living sacrifice because we have to be reminded. Because if not, we revert to the other kinds of sacrifices where we are trying to earn God's favor. And this response, this giving up our lives for God in response to what he's done is acceptable. It's acceptable. It's what God poured out his love on the cross for to earn this kind of response from us because he loves us and because he wants us to share in his love. It's it's all that he's asking from us is that we just give up our lives as a living sacrifice. And this is your spiritual worship. Worship is much more than just getting up and singing a beautiful song or whatever our outward demonstrations of worship are. Worship is marked by an abandon of ourselves because we see the value of Christ, because we value him more than anything else. And when we worship him that way, it leads to our lives not being conformed to the world, the systems around us. It leads to a renewed mind. It leads to us being transformed through that renewal of our mind and coming to a place where we can walk it out in our life, where we're testing what's good and acceptable and perfect, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here's the side note. Here's a little rabbit trail. Um, There's a book called, um, actually, let me just grab it. Tirza, can you can you grab the book out of the backpack right there, right in front of you? I want to I show you. It's called Delighting in God by Michael Reeves. It's a book that talks about the Trinity um, and how that the triune nature of God, the multi-person nature of God establishes who he is and consequently our relationship to that God. So I just want to show you the cover so that when you go on to Amazon to get it, you'll recognize it. Okay, it's called "Delighting in the Trinity." It is so worthwhile. It's um, it's not it's not super heavy theologically. It's, it's fairly easy to read, but it's profound, um, and it's altered the way that I see God because the Trinity has always been one of those things that's like, you know, you can't. You can't quite wrap your mind around it, so you come up with some lame analogies to kind of help you 
see that, that God is three persons in one. Um, but uh, Leah Bowling recommended it to me at a, the perfect time because I was really kind of grappling with the separateness don't take that the wrong way, of, of, or the, the distinctness, that's a better word, of the persons of God. And because of what we see in the New Testament, the way that Jesus related to the Father as distinct persons. Um, how many of you know what the Jesus-only um, denomination is? Have you run into any of those? I've run into some of them in Central America and, and some Hispanics around here, actually. They believe that the Trinity doesn't exist, that Jesus is the only person of God. And so he is the Father, he is the Spirit, he is the Son. He is God in three... The, he is the three persons of God, but I'm not sure. It gets really confusing. Anyway, they they try to solve the problem by just kind of melding the three into into one person. But it doesn't really solve the problem. It creates problems. Because in fact... The identity of God is wrapped up in the fact that he is father, life-giving father who begot a son. And of their relationship to each other in the spirit and their love for each other to the point of even Jesus saying, I'm not doing my will, I'm giving it up for the will of the father. I'm doing what he wants, I'm doing what he asks me to do. And of, of the Father taking all things and putting them into subjection under the Son and exalting the Son above anything else in the universe. And then, then finally, the Son is going to be subjected to the Father so that He may be all in all. And there's this beautiful working relationship that when you see the way they relate to each other, some of the way they relate to us starts making more sense. For example, why does God tell us that He is love? He doesn't just say, I love. He says, I am love. First John, he, he tells us, Beloved, lo- let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's his nature. Why doesn't he say, uh, God is omniscience? Or we know that God is a- angry with the wicked. Why doesn't he say God is wrath? Why does he say God is love? Because there's something transcendent about the the loving nature of God. It didn't start when creation came into being. It didn't start when he created humanity. God didn't start loving then. He was love before that. He has always been love. The Father has always been in a loving relationship with the Son through the Spirit, for all eternity past. And so that is a defining characteristic of God. He is love. So is by not understanding the Trinity, by not understanding the fact that God is three persons and the way that those three persons of God exist together in perfect oneness, interacting in perfect love and harmony, we miss out on, on just the loving nature of God and the way that he pulls us into that relationship with him. Because he has always existed as a perfect expression of love, that love can't help but flow out. That's the nature of it. 
I know there's been a lot of discussions over whether God really loves anything other than himself because he is all in all. And Gnostic thought in the second and third centuries concluded that God was all in all. He was perfectly self-existent. He was the the one being that existed. And then evil came onto the scene kind of as a glitch. And so creation was the result of that because God needed a place where he could put evil. Instead of seeing creation as the result of a God who was already functioning in harmony, Father and Son through the Spirit, in loving harmony, and the creation was an outflow of that love because the love was, was so big. He wanted to share it with others. He wanted to pull others into that love. That's how grace is defined. It's God pouring himself into us, into our circumstances, because he loves us so much. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So now we're going to go to John chapter 17 where Jesus prayed for his disciples and he prayed for his followers who would come after, who would believe in his name um, even after the disciples had believed. When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. There's two things I want us to listen for in this passage here. One is what God does with his glory, and the other is what he does with his love or his oneness, okay? Because the Father and the Son are one. So so focus on those words, one or oneness and, and love, and also the glory of God. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is life, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say down in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. No distinction. That's incredible. That God loves us the way he loved his only son. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, 
Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There it is. God's love already existed before the foundation of the world. He was already pouring it out lavishly on his son before the world was created. We can't even, we can't wrap our minds around that because we can't really think of, you know, God only existing. We, we think of, we think in terms of the physical, what we can see. But for eternity, the father was lavishing his love on the son. And Jesus says, I want them to see that. I want them to see the glory that, that you've given me and the love that you've given me, even before the foundation of the world. I want them to begin to experience that. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, that, that these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. So that's that love of God, the Father, to the Son. That same love is now in us because Jesus asked for it to be that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's that oneness. Not only does he give us his love, he makes us one with him. Do you realize that this is the same God who says in Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We often read that as kind of this singular egocentric God, kind of a selfish, self-centered God who's out there. And I, I use these words carefully because there's, it's difficult for us to think of an almighty, sovereign God who is actually not selfish, even though he is the only one who deserves glory and honor and praise. He is extremely unselfish because he is love. Because the nature of his love couldn't stay contained within that relationship between father and son and spirit. It flowed out. And so when, when God created, it was the outflow of that love that was creating. And Adam and Eve became recipients of that love in a powerful way. God said, I want fellowship with you guys. I want to interact with you guys because I love you because that's who God is. And he knew all along that they were going to reject that love and turn inward toward themselves and begin to love themselves instead of loving him. And yet he risked it. So maybe we've read this wrong. You know what Isaiah chapter 42 is? The, the preceding part of the chapter, it's, it's actually a prophecy of the son who would come. Who would come to... It says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from their dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. It, it talks about this Messiah, this son, coming into our darkness and into our dungeon with his love. This is the same God who's saying, I will not give my glory to any other. And now Jesus is saying, you've given me all of your glory. And I've given it to them. I'm sharing it with them. It's, it's almost outrageous when you see it from that perspective that he would do that, that he would share his glory with us. No, he won't share it with any other God. And he won't share it with our self-centered 
propensity to love ourselves instead of God. He won't share it with the carved images of our affection. But he shares his glory freely with the Son. In fact, Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 1, 3 says he's the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the glory of God. The glory of God was in Jesus. And then Jesus comes and says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. The love that you've given me, I've given them. That's what makes us one. That's what creates oneness in the body of Christ. It's when we live from that reality and out of that grace, that outpouring of grace. So now when we go back to John 17 and we read that, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have been given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. See, do you hear that longing for us participating in the glory that the Father and Son shared, the glory that the Father gave to the Son and the love that they shared together? This is why you cannot love God and not love your brother. This is also a mystery that just like all of a sudden it makes sense to me. I've always wondered how can God say that? Because people are hard to love. People are imperfect. They hurt us. They exclude us. They say mean things. They're just hard to love oftentimes. So how can God say that if we don't love those kinds of people that we don't love him? Isn't it a lot easier to love God than to love fallen human beings but what he's saying is the nature of his love is that it flows out because that's what his love did in the most bizarre expression of love god himself became human flesh and humbled himself and became a servant to humanity and became obedient to death even the death of the cross that is the expression of god's love and he's saying if that love is in you you can't help but love other people and if that love is not in you then you won't love other people because they are hard to love So do you see now how the the commands, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, that were burdensome and impossible to obtain, became through Jesus as he shared his love, the love that the Father gave to him, he shared it with us. The glory that the Father gave to him, he is sharing with us. Do you see how that those commands now become an outflow of the grace that we have received and it's in response to the outpouring of love and grace that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, set apart, acceptable. In light of the invitation to participate in that love that flows between the Father and Son in the Spirit, how can we not view this as our reasonable service? This is why... An understanding of the gospel has to precede this list of do this, do that in Romans 12. And this is why Paul says, by the grace given to me, by the mercies of God, by the grace given to me, and by the grace given to each one of you, this is how you're supposed to live. By the grace given to me, he says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. 
Instead, think soberly. This is where an understanding of grace comes in because grace is the only thing that keeps us from boasting in ourselves. When in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, he says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just while being the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus and here it is then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded when you, when you become aware of this reality that the grace of God, which was freely given to us, was in no way earned by us, and it was completely undeserved, where is boasting? How could we boast of even the good things that come as fruit out of our lives when we realize it's all grace? And that's what Paul is telling them. Realize that this grace that's been poured into your life is going to result in an outworking with boasting excluded. The opposite of thinking highly of ourselves is not like a put-on air of humility like we think it is oftentimes. It's to think soundly. It's being a realist, okay? So if you are a realist, you will be humble. If you think soundly, if you think with sound judgment, you will be humble because you will know and understand that what you're given is all grace whether it's the grace that came in the form of salvation through Jesus Christ or whether it's the grace that is given to you day by day to be able to serve and give your life as a living sacrifice, you will realize this is all undeserved grace. Now, side note number two, related to side note number one, where we talked about God's love for between the Father and Son and how that love poured out. This helps us understand what the original sin was as well. What was the first sin in the Garden of Eden? No wrong answers. Pride? Okay, that's commonly the one that's cited. Pride. So, um, so when the serpent came to Eve, he said, did God say? So sometimes people will say, well, it was questioning God. You should never question God. You should always just take his word and go with that. But in fact, was there maybe something that was underneath that pride, that arrogance that said, I'm going to take my own way, even though God said? Maybe we can find the answer if we look at Satan's original sin. What was Satan's original sin? Again, no wrong answers. Okay, so he wanted to be like the Most High. Um, I think that comes out of Isaiah. Is Is there any word that kind of wraps that up? Deception. That was definitely part of it. He was self-deceived. Any other word that you think might describe the first sin? 
you say pride? Did, did you say pride? Did somebody say pride? You said pride? Okay. And you said exalting himself? Yeah. So th- that sounds kind of like the same thing, right? He was, there was self-exaltation and there was pride against God. But I was, I've always wondered where, where could this pride come from? Like really, he was in the presence of God. And Ezekiel chapter 28 gives us a fairly elaborate description of the state of Satan before his fall. Now, it is, it's given as an oracle to the king of Tyre. Um, but partway through it, it kind of turns and it becomes obvious that it's also speaking, um, maybe parabolically, of the fall of Satan. And this is what Ezekiel says in the Lamentation over the Prince of Tyre. He says that he was the anointed guardian without sin from the day he was created. So God didn't create Satan as a fallen angel. He created him without sin. He was elaborately beautiful. And he gives a description of the stones, the 12 stones that were set in gold. It's kind of um, a picture of the way the high priest would come into the presence of God with the 12 stones on his um, chest. He was in Eden, the garden of God, and was without sin from the day he was created till unrighteousness was found in you. His heart was proud. His heart became proud. There's that word, pride. Because of his beauty, and he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his splendor. Therefore, God cast him to the ground. So, what had to precede that pride? Satan began looking, instead of looking at God, the glorious Almighty God that had created him in his beauty and, and to fill a very specific role in the kingdom of God, he started looking away from God and he started looking toward himself. He exchanged the wisdom of God, the truth about God, for his own glory. And he started to turn inward and to love himself. Do you see how love is really at the root of it? He began to love himself instead of loving God. The angels are intended to be ministering spirits who love God. Not in the same way that that redeemed humanity loves God, but they're intended to love God and to serve him with love. Because that's who God is. And therefore, all creation is intended to be an expression of love, a, a, a creation that reciprocates love back to God. And Satan turned inward on himself. Martin Luther defined the sinner as the person who is curved in on himself. So instead of looking outward, instead of looking upward and outward, we start looking at ourselves. We become the object of our own affection, a twisted version of love that God intended for us to give back to him. That's what Eve did. She exchanged her love for God. She had just this amazing relationship with God where God would come into the garden and God would talk with Adam and Eve. And Eve exchanged that for love for herself. And she said, I'm going to take my own way. I think that by eating that fruit, I can, I can get something out of this that God doesn't offer me. And she began to love herself. The rest is history. That same inward bent plagues us to this day. 
so that the whole creation groans waiting for the redemption from that curse of self-love. This bent toward loving ourselves can be more subtle than we think. It can even come into our relationship with Christ. We can easily shift from loving Christ and from being just enraptured with His goodness and His beauty to loving ourselves. Even in our identity in Christ, we, we can twist that into something that becomes about me instead of about Him. From, from being enthralled with His worth and finding our value in Him, we start looking at ourselves and, and even our own positional glory in Christ. The good news is that God restored us to himself through the ultimate demonstration of love, which was what? Humbling himself. And while we were yet sinners and couldn't reciprocate any of that love, we didn't love him at all. That's clear. He loved us and gave himself up for us. And when we are drawn back into that relationship with God, that's exactly the thing that starts happening to us. We humble ourselves. We start thinking with sober judgment, which means I'm not as great as I thought. And we start realizing that this grace that's flowing through me is just that. It's grace. And that's why he says, think soberly, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We don't all have the same measure of faith. We don't all have the same gifts of the Spirit. We don't all have the same measure of grace. But He wants us to live to the maximum of the measure of grace that He has given us. I think in 1 Corinthians 5, He says that He gives the gifts as it pleases Him. Here He says He apportions to everyone the gifts as they're needed. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And that oneness comes as we are one with Christ. This echoes that prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he said, The glory I have given, the glory you have given me, I have given them. The oneness that I experience with you, they are experiencing in me. Because You are in me and I am in them. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. This picture of oneness, of one body, doesn't work from an individualistic perspective. And I'm going to say this. It doesn't even work if if your personal sanctification is primarily what you have in view. It works when you see that God has a larger objective than you individually, than me individually. He, has, he is making a corporate body into the likeness of Christ. And when you start seeing it that way, then the process starts to make more sense. Because if it's just about me and my sanctification, personally, individually, then why would God not do it all at once? Why would he give grace in a smaller measure to some of us than to others? Why would he give a few gifts to one of us and many gifts to someone else? Or what appears to be an insignificant gift to me and a larger gift to someone else? If it's about me. 
But when you see it as the collective body that Christ is conforming into his image through the Spirit and bringing into oneness through the Spirit because he shared his love with us, then the process starts making more sense. And you realize, wow, God is doing this in us collectively. And so I'm going to live to the maximum of the measure of grace that I've received. And I'm going to exercise the gift that God has given me, however insignificant it appears to me. I'm going to exercise it so that we can all come to perfection in Christ. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about, what that looks like. Whether it's in prophecy or service or teaching or exhortation or giving with generosity or in leading or in showing mercy, whatever the gift is that God has given you, let's use them according to the measure of faith that he's given us. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. This can only happen when it's an outflow of the love that we've experienced from God. If you haven't experienced the extravagant love of God as your father, you will not be able to love others with a sincere, genuine love. Your love will be counterfeit and it will wear out. It won't hold up to being tested by other people. But when we receive that flow of love that came from Jesus, because it's what he experienced from the Father, and he shared it with us, it becomes an outflow, a natural outflow out of our lives. In fact, if we haven't received the love of Jesus and the love of the Father through Jesus, our love is going to be primarily turned inward. We're going to be curved inward on ourselves. And it's going to be about me and what I can get out of it. And it will eventually turn into bitterness and even vitriol. Love one another with brotherly affection. Be siblings. Love each other the way you loved your brother or your sister. Well, maybe not exactly like that, but being one in Christ gives us a connection that's deeper than any human organizational efforts can work out. It gives us a connection because we are one with Christ as he is one with the Father. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that's where we're going to stop. Outdo one another in showing honor. As Christ came... And he humbled himself and he was emptied of his glory and he took our sin on himself. He's calling us into that same demonstration of sacrificial love to each other. And it can be a beautiful outflow if we're experiencing his love for us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's show preferential honor toward each other. This week, let's outdo each other. This is where the competition comes in. Let's outdo each other in showing honor because we are aware that Jesus came and shared his glory with us, with our brothers and sisters. And he shared the love that the Father gave to him. He shared it all with us because just as the Father loved him, so he loves us. He wants us to know that. 
And when we, when we understand that flow of grace, then this list of what to do becomes a natural outflow instead of a tedious moral code that we're trying to live up to. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, for the way that he demonstrated his love for us by pouring himself out. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, became sin for us, so that